good. All right. Very grateful to have this opportunity. Um, a week ago, or less than a week ago, I was after the small group. I just wasn't feeling the greatest, and never had a fever or anything. Just having asthma stinks because any little breathing issue. You know, I was just telling Pastor Nick I tend to be a hypochondriac at times, where. Last week it was my feet, my blood pressure. This week it's my asthma, and it's like, I'm dying, Lord, here I come, you know. It's like you start looking up. The worst thing you can do when you're sick is to start looking up stuff. WebMD. Yeah, WebMD or anything like that. You start telling yourself that, you know, you're on your way to glory, you know. So this is such a lofty topic. It's, it's just amazing to me to see, uh, look over and see the brother who helped me grow through a lot of this stuff, you know, theologically and see him here tonight. Um, John, I'm going to call you out now. <laughs> but, you know, I think that when I think of this topic, it's such a, I wonder, like, how do I keep getting these topics, right? It's like the fall of man is so foundational in Scripture. It's so comprehensive throughout the Bible. Like, when you see what's wrong with humanity, what's wrong with us, right? We wonder when we already know sometimes, right? It's like as sinners, you know, we don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And from the very beginning, do we see God's glorious plan and the estate that Adam fell into? I often think of the symphony and the opera. I grew up in San Francisco, and my, my mom would always take us to the symphony and to the opera, and I was like, man, this is so boring, right? At the time, I just didn't appreciate those things, but one of the things I learned is just the harmony and the unison, you know, that, that just everything was together, right? And when you think of systematic theology, it can be done right, and it can be done wrong, you know? Of course, you need biblical theology if you want to have an accurate systematic theology, but systematically the bible does have major themes like redemption you know and a lot of times people the misconception of the fall is is that people all have the same view of it and i'll tell you they don't throughout christianity there's like there's ebbs and flows and then there's people who have it down here and people who have a, a, a view that's up here but when you really think about the fall in and of itself, it's so foundational. When people start to question original sin and depravity, I wonder if they've actually really either understood or sanctified or some, are they even converted? Are they even Christians? If you don't understand your need for Christ, first you have to understand how lost you are. So let me say, if you are to have sound theology as a Christian. Your theology must consist of a sound understanding of God. I think proper theology has to begin and end with God. Of course, the doctrine of God, but in addition to that sound theology, it just it has to flow through the Godhead. The purposes of God in theology, if you don't have a good doctrine, a good foundation of who God is, then you're not going to understand a lot of things in the Bible. In the London Baptist Confession, chapter 3 of God's decree, paragraph 1, it says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things 
whatsoever comes to pass. I find it interesting that you could have a statement like that and still have people disagree over certain things when it comes to God's sovereignty, even within reform circles. So as we go further, I think we'll dive into that a little bit more. So tonight we're going to, uh, before we get into the misery of the estate which Adam fell, we're going to read the question. This is question 22. Okay, I don't have any notes or anything. So if you guys have the church website up or if you have your booklet um, and you look at question 22, you can read the answer after I'll ask the question. What is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? Answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So there's a plethora of verses here. You guys didn't read with me at all, man. You guys are fired. <laughs> so, there's a plethora of verses here. I'm going to do my best to get through all these verses. Um, I kind of find these sermons or these messages more topical in nature, but you can still try to extract what the meaning is out of each verse as you go along. So tonight, as we dive into the misery of this estate in which Adam fell and the consequences of his disobedience, I mean, Adam actually disobeyed. It happened. God gave him a command. He didn't do it. We can't help but do so in diving into this to come across the doctrine of the total depravity of man because that's the estate that Adam brought man into when he plundered humanity into darkness by disobeying the Lord. Now, I don't mean absolute depravity, which is to say that man is not as wicked as he could be. Now, in order to understand this, I mean, like I said, I grew up going to the opera. Yeah, I was a privileged kid, right? <laughs> really, I was very thankful that my mom would take me there. But we also grew up a few blocks from the projects. And some of the most gangsterous, murderous people who I went to high school with, played basketball with, you wouldn't even think they would murder somebody in a heartbeat. But they'd still care for their children and love their mother, so they weren't as wicked as they could be. You know, and it's God's restraining power and grace, even in a wicked person, fulfilling his own good purposes. Think of this concept applies to a Hitler or a Mussolini. We always like to think of, of somebody as, as evil as that, like, like, oh, that's them, that couldn't be us. Oh, yeah, it could be us, all right, and then some. So God is sovereign over evil. We'll see that tonight. And he possesses the power to restrain it. Dr. R.C. Sproul said, if you embrace the tea of tulip, the rest of the system will fall in line. Tulip is so foundational to understanding the entire Bible. So my goal tonight is to demonstrate what man fell into, how he fell, and what the only hope man has is that God is king and he's sovereignly reigning and above all of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. In his book, The Doctrine of Election, my favorite theologian is A.W. Pink. You're going to hear him quite a bit tonight. A.W. Pink said he is the decider and determiner of every man's destiny and the controller of every detail in each individual's life, which is only another way of saying that God 
is God. So you think about that. Do we really think that way? I mean, as Calvinists, you know, I was just talking with a brother in here just now about, you know, worry. You know, we can worry about things and it becomes anxiety where it becomes depression or discouragement. And those things are sin. And we need to know that they're sin because you cannot possibly trust the Lord. You know, we cling to God and say, yeah, sovereignty, this, that, and the other. But then when sovereignty comes to our doorstep, it's like, God, where are you? <laughs> you know, so I think it was Ryle who said the most offensive doctrine in all of the Bible to the human heart is the sovereignty of God. And when I thought about that, I was like, wow. It's like, maybe that brother's tripping. Then I reread it and I was like, wow, it is offensive. Because when God actually brings things that we don't like into our lives, we're like, we won't come out and say it. Well, great, by grace, we won't. But a lot of times we think, it like, how dare this happen to me? You know, it's, it's amazing. It just is, is grace that we even hold to these doctrines. But it's one thing to hold to them. Practically speaking, it's another thing to actually live them. In Genesis 3.8, it says, after Adam had disobeyed the command of the Lord, Adam and Eve attempted to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord because they knew that they sinned. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam's hiding himself from Yahweh was the direct result of not doing according to what the Lord had commanded him. I mean, his shame was evident. I always love the next passage. I didn't put it in my notes, but I always love the next passage when the Lord said to him, who told you you were naked? You know, a lot of times uh, in apologetics, I, I love to use that, just that type of questioning when I'm talking to lost people and they're like, well, I know this and they're so dogmatic about something that's a lie. And I'm like, who told you that? Who told you that? Well, we know, obviously. It's their father, the devil. So I think it's appropriate to use that type of uh, questioning when we see error. Obviously, God was drawing this out of him with a, with a rhetorical type question, right? If you go back to Genesis 2:15 through 17, it says that then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend to it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may eat freely but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die Baptist covenant theology if you think of it very simply goes like this God told Adam do this old man and you shall live and we know Adam didn't do that but Christ in eternity do this so Christ and man shall live so when you think about the first and second Adam in the Bible, one Adam failed miserably, and it led to the destruction of a vast majority of the human race. And the other Adam is triumphant and is going to save and is saving and bring his people home. Now we know that when Adam ate, he went on to live for a long time. God told him, and the day you eat, you shall surely die. He died, spiritually speaking. Okay? When we read in the scriptures 
It talks about being dead in trespasses and sins. A spiritual death that man has experienced from day one, being born in Adam, means to be born dead in your trespasses and sins. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. You're dead to the things of God. You're totally depraved. You have no desire for the things of God. Doesn't mean that you can't think. Doesn't mean that you can't reason. Doesn't mean that you can't come up with things that are true. You know, there are plenty of brilliant, unbelieving people. But it's not intellectual. It's not their intellect that's the problem. I remember what R.C. Sproul used to say, unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem, right? You're depraved. You're dead to the things of God. The Lord, when he gave Adam this clear command, Adam's failure to comply in rebellion because he ignored the command of God, it led to a, I said a lot in my notes, but now the more that I study, very few scholars call the decree of all decrees. John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, very good book. If you haven't gotten that book, if you haven't read through that book, I love John Owen, love his work. But um, he's got a great story, too, by the way. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. I don't know if you, are y'all familiar with John Owen, a lot of y'all? Yeah, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, one of, one of his great works. But Communion with God, in it he expounds the glory of God in the fall. Something not much thought about. You know, we often think, well, yeah, Adam failed, Adam failed miserably. You know, you hear Christians say, oh, he messed it up for everyone, and I'm thinking, Okay, I see what you're saying, but do you see God's glory even in this event of the fall? That God does all things for his glory. If you say that God is in control of everything on one hand, and then all of a sudden, I don't think people really think about what they're saying. Maybe they think that's just limited to this fallen you know, age that we live in right now. This, this, it's delegated to this time of space, but God is sovereign from everlasting to everlasting. And we need to realize that. In Revelation 4.11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God created everything that exists for his own glory. That would include Adam. That would include Eve. That would include the devil himself. Okay, Martin Luther used to say, He's the devil, but he's God's devil. Okay? A lot of people don't really uh, latch on to that type of thinking. The Lord created Adam, the crown jewel of his creation. Adam and Eve, like I said, were created for his own glory. Ultimately, God has his eternal purposes that he works. Now, that would include the fall of Adam. Logically speaking, we'll get into that in a moment. But from that fall, Adam took his wife in an attempt to run from the Lord and hide his shameful deed. We know that this is impossible. Pastor Nick was preaching a few weeks ago. He said, there's no escape in the Lord. Psalm 139, 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. You think about that. I remember until he preached that message, I was never really challenged. And I was like, we always hear people say, well, hell uh, is the separation from God, right? Isn't that what you hear most people say? But they don't think, well, you're not really separated from God. You're separated from God's mercy, right? And his grace. 
God is omnipresent, you know, we have to look at what the scriptures actually teach on that. There's nowhere man can go. You know, not only is it displayed in Psalm 139, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and on the evil. Omnipotence. Uh, omnipresence, I'm sorry. You know, this is every place without exception, obviously. There's no exception to where God is at all. In Genesis 3.10, when Adam actually did try to hide himself, he said, So I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Kind of got ahead of myself here on this one a minute ago, but Adam, in his response to God, he no longer had peace, but he had fear because he knew that what he'd done, his shameful deed, he was naked and afraid, demonstrating that Adam, in and of himself, could not keep God's command apart from God's grace. And even in our own state that we're in, I mean, was Adam perfect? No, we can't say perfect like God, but I think of that passage in Ezekiel when it talks about sealed with perfection. There was something that he was dependent upon God to sustain him in order for him to obey, even in a state unlike ours. You know, and how all that plays out, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I'm sure we can discuss it more. Somebody will probably throw something at me, but, you know, that's, um, that's something that just to think about that if we in a fallen state are in need of God's mercy and grace, it's not limited to us. It was also applied to Adam. You know, Adam, even in the state that he had not even yet tasted sin, still needed the grace of God to keep God's commandments. There's much God has not seen fit to tell us on a lot of these issues. There's a lot of mysteries. We're surrounded by mystery after mystery in the Bible. That's why we have faith, right? There's a lot of things that we cannot explain. You know, I was just talking a while ago about these things, about there's not, a, there's not an answer for everything, right? You know, it's funny when you see people like Hank Hennegraaff prided himself called the Bible Answer Man. Well, to a limit, right? And then he went off into heresy after that. There really is no Bible answer, man. <laughs> We're all still looking for answers and will be until the day we die. But one thing we know, we can conclude that Adam, even though, like I said, he wasn't in a state like ours, he was in, an, he was in a great need for God's grace. And then the Lord drove them out of the garden because of God's holiness. In three, Genesis 3.24, it says he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, there's a lot, it's funny how commentaries are like all over the place on this. Um, I think a lot of people see this as a judgment. That's kind of where I leaned and, and fell down. And the flaming sword here, so that's up for discussion, but Clearly, there's a lot of verbiage in the Bible that talks about this imagery. But I think to simplify it the most, we see God cleansing his garden here. And I would see it as a type of the temple of God. We know that the antitype is Christ and his church, his body. 
So conceptually, we see this in many places throughout the scriptures where we see Satan being driven out of heaven. Okay? It doesn't specifically say that Satan, when he sinned, you know, the Bible doesn't say that clearly anywhere. But in Luke 10, 18, it says, And I beheld Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Jesus drove out the money changers in John chapter 2, verse 12, from the temple, cleansing it with the cat of nine tails. Okay, God's desire is for his temple, his body, his people to be pure. We see it in heaven. Nothing impure will ever enter heaven. You look in Revelation where it talks about the thieves, the abominable, all these people that are outside the gates, okay? God will not dwell with this. We see it in Psalm 1-5 when it says, as the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, we are told that sinners will not stand in the seat of the congregation, okay? We see it in church discipline, okay? If someone falls into sin or if I myself even fell into it, I would hope, which I know you brothers here would approach me and say, brother, that's not right. If it was someone else, we'd hope for the same. But there comes a point, <clears throat> there comes a point where if that person is unwilling to repent, then they must be excommunicated out of the church. Okay, the goal is always restoration. But there's something that's greater than even that goal, and that's holiness. God's people must remain holy. Okay, his body, he even told us, be ye holy for I am holy. Okay, if you let sin run rampant in the church, you no longer have a church. Okay, if you don't have a high view of Christ, reverence for his word, and take sin serious, then you no longer have a church. You have some conservative get-together, country club, but you don't have a church. So we see God driving them out, very similar to the same thing we see throughout Scripture. Okay, another one here that they had in the notes here is Ephesians 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works and the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. We see here Paul breaking down the default position that when man is born, he's lost. He's a child of wrath. He's dead in trespasses and sins. The apostle gives us a picture that we too once walked in this imagery, that we walked according to this course. And where is the world marching towards? Destruction, living in sin, okay? Just the way any unregenerate sinner will walk. But we see here in this text, we see the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay, conducting fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The prince of the power of the air now works on the sons of disobedience who once walked according to the course of this world. So this theme is consistent in Scripture. And we know the prince of the power of the air to be Satan himself, who energizes his children to do evil, demonstrating who their real father is. Now we know that apart from Satan, people don't need the devil to do evil. So, obviously, it's not like that's what this verse is teaching. It's talking about how Satan controls certain parts that God has decreed that he has over a realm of darkness. Okay, there are certain places. This is why I was hoping some of our post-mill brothers would be here tonight. There's certain areas that God has put strongholds in place that are not to be 
mess with in this world. Now, we don't know where they are, but we know they exist. We know they exist. There's very dark, dark parts of the world where people go as missionaries. They say, oh, well, I prayed about it. I'm going over there. And, you know, the guy ends up with his head chopped off. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't the will of God. Of course it was. But there are places where God has no desire to convert some people. Okay? And those places of darkness are very deep, deep darkness. Even I look at San Francisco now. This guy, he's a Pentecostal preacher, but I like to enjoy watching some of his videos on, on YouTube because he's really bold. His name is David Lynn. Uh, Christ Forgiveness is his ministry. He gets a little wild on some stuff, but you got to appreciate that brother's zeal. Like, he's on the front lines. He was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they spat in his face. They slapped him. They, like, hit him with different things, and I was just like, man. It's like I think, well, yeah, we need to go out and do some street evangelism, but I see that, and I'm like, whoa, hold it now. <laughs> it's like, whoo, boy, I'd probably catch a case out there with the fools, right? But it takes grace, you know? God doesn't always restrain evil. He has a purpose for it. So as Adam's children, which at birth we all are, lost people walk contrary to the law of their creator fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and are by nature children of wrath, children of destruction, children of judgment. <clears throat> Once again, Adam's fall took humanity into a state of depravity and that's the consequences for breaking God's law, God's command to not eat. So total depravity is that a state that every man who is depraved our desires, our thoughts, our affections, our pleasures, our joys, our endeavors, our health even. Our fall has affected us all the way down to our inner being, to our spirit is dead. In Genesis 6-5, it explains what this looks like. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Joshua, bring my water. This gave birth to a race of accursed children. A lot of times do we really think about that. If God, everyone, if you read Romans 5 and you read it consistently, you'll see it uses the word many, right? And then other times it doesn't. And then it'll say all. But if you look at it one there's a distinction in that, in that text from verses 12 on that some of the people remain in their sins and other people are brought out of them. So look at what Galatians 3 says from this catechism. It says, it, it shows this verse, which is actually a really good one. We'll try to draw out the meaning here. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Those who, are the work of, those who are of the works of the law or the covenant of works, a lot of theologians have described it. I mean, I'm fine with that term. I believe that term. Believe that doctrine. Also known as those who are in Adam under the curse that God pronounced on their federal head. Adam. To be under the curse means to be under the law and its righteous requirements. Okay, we should know Romans 6, 
Okay, how many antinomians take that and they stop right there? Free from the law, happy condition. I'm like, no, 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 keep reading. It doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want. Okay? But to be under the law, I think of Galatians uh, 3, when the Lord said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. Okay? God's elect were born under the law. But guess what? Christ was born under the law. He actually kept it. Okay? So to be under the law, if someone tells you, yeah, we're under the law, well, you got to be careful because that means you're not even saved. You're still in your sins. Because according to Galatians 3, Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. So if you say you're under the law, you must not be redeemed. So to be under the law means to be still in your sins. Okay, now that doesn't mean that shall we, what then shall we say? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Genoito, may it never be. Okay, that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. Obviously, if you're truly redeemed, you're going to want to express your love for God and your adoration to him. Okay, how shall he who died to sin live any longer there in it? Okay, Paul made that argument, but he did expound to us several places what under the law means in Romans 6, in Galatians 3, and here in Galatians uh, 3 right here. talks about, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So it means you're under the righteous requirements of the law. You cannot get free of this. You're bound up in prison being slaves to lawlessness. That's pretty scary. I remember those days when I wasn't saved. It was just, I wasn't trying to battle sin. I was trying to get better at it. It wasn't a, a desire to ever have victory in my life over anything. There was a desire to stand there until I got all the pleasure and extracted every pleasure there was to get out of that sin. Okay, And that's how the world lives. That's how the world lives. But a Christian does does not live like that. And I'm not saying that a Christian can't live like that, but you cannot get comfortable in your sin. It's going to be a while before God does something about it. Okay, He will not leave his elect in that, in that type of a state without doing something about it. Just according to Hebrews 12, Nick was reading that a couple of weeks ago. So I think we should all pause for a moment and think about what we're saying here because these aren't merely just words that are spoken in some temporal you know, sermon. No, these things are, have eternal truth that this misery that Adam was plundered into has eternal consequences. And from that, even before that, God, God has decreed two groups of people, two groups of people. Those are to be born in Adam and purchased by the Son of God because the Father gave them to the Son in eternity. Okay, this is what's called the covenant of redemption. The Spirit gives life. The father, obviously I'm saying it backwards, but the father elects, the son purchases, and the spirit gives life. And once he gives that life, no one can pluck us out of our father's hand. We're safe. And then there are those from eternity past by the decree of God from the cradle to the grave go into damnation. Okay, That word reprobate, a lot of people don't really, uh, it's a dokimoi in Greek, and it means, just picture when you, what day your garbage is, right? You gather all your garbage and get all your nasty stuff you have no value of and you throw it away. 
And the garbage man gets it, throws it on the side of the truck. And it pretty much means worthless. Okay, so in eternity, there are some that God has created for his own glory to go into damnation. Okay, and I love when I have these discussions with a lot of my Pelagian, semi-Pelagian friends, and I ask them, I say, well, let me ask you a question. Why did God create these people that he knows aren't going to accept him? And they'll stop and they'll say, well, I don't know. I say, well, that's great, because I do know for his glory. Hey, it may not feel good, but since when is the Bible ever about our feelings, right? Why should a man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. This verse hit me like a mat truck when I was going through this, this uh, catechism. I was like, wow, I don't remember this verse just being so plain right here. Why should a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. You often hear a lot of people say, yeah, we all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve to go to hell. Do they really believe that? Because when God actually gives someone who's blind, who has no faith in Christ, justice for their sins, that's when they become unglued and they have a problem with it. But I'll read that verse again. Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? What's wrong with God giving people what they actually deserve? Okay? And even as Calvinists sometimes, I found my own heart like, God, are you really going to do that? Or almost like a, how could you, God? That's not the right question. Why would God save any of us is the real question. So what is there actually to complain about? God is just, man is a sinner. He has the right to do with us whatever he pleases. In Ezekiel 18, when it talked about, you know, the sins of the father, the sins of the son, the Lord declared, behold, all souls are mine, the, souls of the, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son. The soul who sins shall die. We need God to redeem us. Our, our soul will go into everlasting destruction. That's why we can't ever let anyone tell us that Christ just came to save us from hell. You know, we're doing family worship. There's one of my kids when I'll say, what did Jesus come to save us from? And they will be, I, I know, I know, sin and hell. And I'm like, that's right, boy, you elicit it, right? Sin and hell, not just fire insurance. Jesus came in Matthew 121 to save his people from their sins. And if you haven't been saved from your sins, then you're not saved. He has to be master, Lord, and Savior. Reminds me of when I was at our old church. One of the pastors had said, yeah, you know, John, there's some people, Jesus just isn't their Lord yet. But he's their Savior. And I didn't know very much at the time. I was like, I said, is that possible? I just knew my own conversion. I was like, I abhor myself when I fall into these patterns of sin and I desire to come out of them. So I was like, I was like, what, what, is you, what are you saying, man? Like, explain that to me. And he really couldn't. So that's where the lordship discussion comes in, right? He's lord of all, period. 
One of the other verses they went through is Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another verse that you'd be shocked how many people, when they interpret this verse, it just it blows my mind. Here Paul was reminding the church in Rome that the unregenerate will receive the wages of their sins. Wages or payment of their, for their sins. Justice. He demonstrated in the previous verses that there's a difference between regenerate and unregenerate, saved and lost people. Okay, the unregenerate walk in the flesh. Those who have eternal life in Christ walk by faith because they have been granted that faith by God. They've been granted repentance. They've been granted the new birth or regeneration. So the wages of that payment for the lost is eternal death. The word, I always struggle to pronounce this word, thanatos is Greek for spiritual and physical death. For reprobate people, that is those who are accursed by God from eternity past, it's both for them. Okay, they don't just die once. There's a second death for them. We see that in the book of Revelation. So the reprobate receive both. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only way that gift comes to any sinner at all is when the Messiah, Christ, comes and sets the captives free. Okay? I love this passage right here in Isaiah 61 when the prophecy, the messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus, it said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I love that imagery there, okay? I got into a lot of trouble when I was young, and I went to jail and did all kinds of stupid stuff. And when you go in jail, you ain't getting out. Keys are on the outside. It's that simple, okay? When you're born a slave to sin, you ain't getting out. Unless God sets you free, okay? In John chapter 8, when the Pharisees were enraged with Jesus, he told them, he said, he who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides in the house forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Okay, you need God to open this prison to any sinner in order for them to be saved. Are that sinner is going to go into this place right here in Matthew 25, 41, Okay. Very clear to me. I'm not, I don't even try to uh, dance around this passage. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say, he will say also to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When Christ declared here to those on the left hand, I wish Mark was here. I tell him, Mark, that's not Democrats. <laughs> that's Mark Evans is here. But to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Why is he calling them cursed? Who did he pronounce the curse on? 
their federal head. Who are they in? Adam. Where are they going? In the everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil of his and his angels. A lot of people like to say, see, see, it wasn't for them, it was for the devil and his angels. Well, I, in the simplest understanding of that, I would just think because they sinned before man did. We see this concept consistent in the book of Revelation. When it talks about the book of life, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. But there's other books there. And I always see people fail to comment on those. But some commentators come out and just say, these other books, these other books, they can't be the book of life, right? So they're trying to come up with a conclusion here. And they're using in inductive reasoning. And they're saying, you know, if this is the book of life and these other people are judged, you know, they're not found in Christ and they're thrown in that, the lake of fire, this must be the book of death. I would agree with them. So the book of life, simply put, is where the elect are written in eternity. The book of death is where the reprobate or the worthless, okay, the accursed children are written. Ultimately, it's revealed in eternity when we all are done here and God has done in his providential dealing of building his church. Okay, we can't address all that tonight, but I thought I would at least touch on it. Let me try to move us along here. You know, when Adam didn't obey the Lord, he obeyed the voice of his, life, his wife. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to our wives, but Eve sinned. Why didn't God impute Eve's sin, right? Because Adam is the federal head. So men who are here, that's our responsibility as the head to shepherd and wash your wife, to not blame your wife when she doesn't lead and do things. That's not her responsibility. That's yours. It's mine. Okay? Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your God. Okay, blame yourself. Go look in the mirror. Lead in the home. Love your Lord. Obey him. Keep his commandments. We talked about this in Sunday school. I was getting a little worried a couple of times. We heard some, some comments where I was like, man, some of these people don't really believe in federal headship or in headship, period. But with Nick's message on head coverings, that, that was a really dynamic message. And I think a lot of people who were displaying some vitriol I asked them very simply did Pastor Nick write 1 Corinthians 11? <laughs> he didn't, did he? Okay, whenever we have a problem with something a preacher says we should go either ask for clarification or wonder is the problem is it a kill the messenger type problem because you got sin you don't want to really deal with, right? Okay, that's how we are. I hope, I don't care where you are in your walk, there's going to be times when your rebellion will rear its ugly head because we're fallen. The serpent cunning one whom Adam believed fell into this state that the consequences in Matthew 25, 16, and this is the last of the confession verses or the uh, catechism, and these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Those whom the Lord from eternity to be children of wrath permanently, 
will receive the wages of their unrighteousness and lawless deeds because they are not blessed. They are not forgiven. They are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They are cursed and damned. This is one of the reasons why when we had a discussion on curses and blessing, why it, I resisted it personally because we're not cursed in any sense. Okay, The Bible says in Proverbs that the wicked do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. Okay, It's something that the Spirit does in us when in, in our sanctification, the Spirit is constantly revealing to us where we're falling short, shining light on our lives so that we are being conformed into the image of his son. Okay, that's consistent with the Ordo Salutis, right? Okay, we have to trust that he who began a good work in you will continue it into the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is our God. He's faithful. He's a faithful God. That's his name in Revelation. He who was called faithful and true. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. Woo, that passage gets me like, man, I love that about our God, that he can, those titles belong only to him. He's a faithful God, and we can trust him. So there's a distinction between the cursed and the blessed, the damned and the redeemed. Okay, another pink from, uh, this is from Pink's Short Discourse. It's like a two-minute sermon that I like to listen to when I'm on my way to the office. <clears throat> it's one of those golden treasures that never gets old. Quote, it's called Lost, by the way. If you want it, I can send it to you. It says, what multitudes of people there are who have no concern of their woeful condition. While they do not regard themselves as perfect, yet they are not aware that there is anything seriously wrong with them. They are respectable people, law-abiding citizens, and nothing particular ever troubles their conscience. They consider that they are no worse than their religious neighbors. But though they scarcely ever read the Bible or enter a church, they fully expect to go to heaven when they die. Some of them will indeed admit they are sinners, but imagine that their good works far outnumber their bad ones. Some of them were sprinkled as infants, attended a Sunday school class, as children said their prayers each night, and later joined a church. Let that sink in. Nevertheless, at this moment, they have never realized that they are the enemies of God, an abomination in the eyes of his holiness, and that hell is their just deserts, unquote. You know, even when I see young people in here, I think, man, some of this might even be true, some people in this room, I know we have a small group tonight, but even from the morning service, you know, there's sheep and goats in churches. There's people who don't know the Lord, that are imposters, who say that they do. It's terrifying, you know, but the Bible gives remedy. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Unless you be reprobates, okay? A dokimoi, worthless. Do you not know that Christ Jesus is in you? Well, self-examination is important. A lot of people claim to know the Lord, but they don't. So how do these people actually become an abomination in the eyes of his holiness? 
even more detailed, one must ask, who assigned or imputed the estate which Adam fell into, their depravity, to us all at conception? In other words, did anyone say, sign me up, I want to be a sinner? I don't know anyone that did. You didn't have a choice. You were born that way, right? You were born a sinner, okay? You were born lost. You were born depraved. King David, in sin my mother conceived me, and in iniquity I was brought forth. This is the result of Adam's plunging. Plunging is posterity. That is those who are physically born in Adam into total darkness. Moving this to conclusion, so we connected the dots. We touched on how this is the sovereign decree of God. We saw theologians who are well-respected say how foundational depravity is. You cannot have any of the points of TULIP if you don't first accurately understand depravity. Okay, on the day you eat, you shall surely die. They died. Okay, he died and plundered humanity into darkness, even the creation. Total depravity left man in a, per, in a state in a state of perpetual unbelief in which the sinner is unable and unwilling to come to God. This doctrine is known as total inability. Until we understand the horror of the pit in which we lie, we will never appreciate Christ's so great salvation. Arthur Pink. Let us look at some self-explanatory verses like John 6, 44. Okay, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, no one Adois Dunatai is able. They're not, they don't possess the ability to come to me, is what Jesus is saying. Unless the Father who sent me draws him a ton, and I will raise him. That same him that he draws is the same him that he raises on the last day. It's there's no distinction there. Okay, you always hear people say, well, he draws some and then they draw back into perdition. No. Hebrews 10, 10, 39 says, we are not those who draw back to perdition, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. Okay, the elect, when they believe, they truly believe. John 12. <clears throat> As a result of Adam's fall, man is born dead. He's unable, right? So in John 12, verses 38 to 41, this is a really... I heard a message on this years and years ago when I used to commute to San Francisco and I, I was like crying like a baby. It was like a Presbyterian guy preaching it. And he had so much passion, but he was talking about God's sending people to hell and that was his predetermined purpose for his glory. And I, it was new to me at the time and I was like, man, this is hard to hear. This is hard to stomach. I was like, this is rough. So it says here, it says, this happened so that the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, would be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they will not see with their eyes and understand with their heart 
and be converted, and so I will not heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. That's some heavy, heavy stuff right there. When you talk about even double predestination, John Calvin called it the most terrible of decrees. It says it right here. They could not believe. Inability. God alone blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. He goes on to say, so they will not see. He gives you the reason, the purpose right here why he does it. Aren't men already born blind? So what's called judicial hardening. Not only does God impute Adam's unrighteousness to his posterity, he leaves those men in their sins to suffer the just penalty. God also hardens those who are already lost to reveal his glory as he did Pharaoh. It's right there in the text. Isaiah knew that. He said these things he saw when he spoke of his glory. Another inability text, John 8, 43, when he was contending with the Pharisees, Jesus said, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. They weren't able. So much for free will, huh? They weren't able. They didn't possess the ability to, to understand what he was saying. Okay, they could understand, comprehend those Words, but 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or praised. Okay? It's not that they don't hear you speaking. It's not that those words don't go into their eardrums, into their brain, and that they don't process that. They cannot grab hold of them. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, Covered, hidden, right? It is veiled to those who are lost. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, there's, some scholars say this is God himself. Some say it's the godless age, Satan. They're blinded. Ultimately, we know God is over the devil. So God has blinded these people so they cannot see these things are hidden to those who are in Adam and those who remain in Adam, okay? The wicked, the reprobate, they will always believe lies because the carnal mind is at enmity with God for it is not subject to the law of God, nor it indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm trying to move fast because we're going over here. Those who are in Adam are dead in their sins. They're in the flesh. They do not possess the spirit of God. They cannot be subject or subjugate. They cannot be brought under the control, conquest, or dominion, or domination. They cannot please God until Christ, the conqueror, conquers them and brings them under his dominion or rule. Okay? It's one of the things when we disagree es eschatologically, that's end times, that there's a sphere of rule that God is ruling over when we talk about Christ is reigning right now, okay? Doesn't mean that he's not Lord of all. Doesn't mean that he's not sovereign of all. But when we think about Christ reigning, as simply put, the way I understand it is, 
Christ reigns over the people of God. Okay, David reigned over the people of God. Okay, so it's not that it's limited. That's just the context when we talk about the rule of Christ. Okay, so to our Psalm 110 pounding post-mail brothers, the real meaning of that passage is he turns enemies into worshipers. That's how he puts them under their feet. Okay, I always hear Jeff Durbin say, oh, in some sense, they're going to be brought. No, in the sense that they're going to be converted from being enemies to worshipers. That's what the context of that verse is. Okay, Jeremiah 13, 23. We've heard this one. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you may also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. God alone must change the disposition of one's heart before they will not only do good, but before they can be from one kingdom to the other. The imagery that we see communicates the impossibility of salvation apart from Christ, that we cannot do good until the divine and direct intervention of a sovereign God. Okay, a few more. Ecclesiastes 9.3, also the heart of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Proverbs 10.20, the heart of the wicked is of little worth little worth God even has use for him no. that's the scary part First uh, Samuel 24 13 as the proverb of the ancient says out of wickedness comes more wickedness in his great work reprobation asserted I know we've heard of John Bunyan we always think of Pilgrim's Progress but it's another book that really had me breaking down when I read it. I was like, man, this is some really hardcore, heavy stuff. I just remember when I first became a Calvinist, it was like 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. Wow, time be flying. But I just remember reading some of these. It was like reading some of the stuff that's out there, like the synods of Dorton. It's like, that stuff's so heavy. Like, you read it, it's like right in your face. It's like, God does this, yeah, and he's pleased to do it. A lot of people can't stomach that. So in his, in his book, Reprobation Asserted, Bunyan breaks down how Adam's fall gave birth to an accursed children. And then he quotes 2 Peter 2.12, which says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions. While they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are an accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he's rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Man, this is some heavy stuff. God has made some. It says right here. These, I was talking about false teachers was the context. Someone said, yeah, yeah, this is not, this is not everybody's false teacher. I say, well, <laughs> you don't have to be sitting up on a platform to be a teacher. 
Anyone who's, un who's unregenerate, when you ask them about salvation, they immediately become a false teacher. Okay? I understand that's not the definition we're talking about, but every single person who does not know Christ is a false teacher in some sense. Okay? And it says these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. So yes, okay, let's say it's talking about them. So uh, applicably, we can't say that that applies to everyone who dies outside of Christ. I would say, of course we can. Always gets me that God used a donkey to restrain the madness of the prophets. So God is sovereignly, since the fall, decreed that he would restrain wickedness and send forth good for his own good purposes. Remember, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. It's talking about the crucifixion, Isaiah 53.10. God also restrains evil, we see in Matthew 2.15, where Herod attempted to murder Jesus. Remember, out of Egypt I've called my son. Okay, who do you think paved the path there providentially in his dealing so that Christ, like he said many times, my time has not yet come. Okay, he was talking about providence of his father. So what is the result of the fall? And what does this evil mean for us today? God has, in my mind, undoubtedly decreed the fall. That Adam's disobedience was not some plan B that caught God by surprise. It was plan A. Adam could not have resisted God's will. So in some sense, God, I don't know how all that worked, but must have removed grace when Adam took that test because he failed. So Adam could not have resisted God's will here. Okay, we see that. Again, there's a distinction between the state he was in and the state that we're in, but we see in Romans 9. Remember the same old charge? Well, why does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? But who are you, old man, to reply against God? In other words, shut your mouth. You can't talk back to God. Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Didn't Adam give a similar response? This woman you gave me? It's your fault, God. It can't possibly be mine. The woman you gave me. So why can he do these things? Because he's God. We heard that earlier. It's another way of saying that God is God. God changes not. Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, but as far as resisting God, I love what Daniel 4.35 says when it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? What have you done? Who can say that to God? I certainly can't. Can you? Can anyone? So there's much to speak about. We don't have any more time, but God decreeing the fall is a doctrine called supralapsarianism. Okay? I, always, I read this, and I just, I, mean, I read it to my wife, and I was just waiting for her to look at me sideways because I didn't drop the punchline, but she knew where I was going with it. The fall of man was both necessary and wonderful. 
You think about that. You stop right there, most people just be like, what you talking about? Well, it's like, what? Necessary and wonderful? Necessary to bring about salvation? Wonderful to glorify God. It was the sovereign purpose and decree of God. So when we break down that term, supra is a prefix to the meaning means above or over or beyond the limits of or outside of. Lapsus or lapsarian means fall. God is above or over the fall. God is beyond the limits of the fall. God is outside of the fall. I would say amen to that. Okay? And this is consistent with the doctrine of the covenant of redemption. A lot of times we don't really think about that. We'll say, yeah, ask of me and I'll give you a people for your inheritance to the end of the earth. And then we see the high priestly prayer of John 17 saying, well, this was taking place in eternity. Well, if this covenant was in eternity, then logically the fall hadn't happened yet. That means the fall had to be a part of God's plan. It had to be. So once again, he brings this to pass, like we saw in the London Baptist earlier. He brings everything to pass. He decrees everything. Even in Titus, when he said, according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledgement of the truth, God, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. God's not going to make a promise that he's not going to keep. God's not going to promise something if time, if time didn't begin and then not bring it to pass. That means Adam's fall was a foregone conclusion. And it talks about the faith of God's elect here. Now, it doesn't say who the promise is to. Could be an intertrinitarian covenant redemption type promise. Maybe, maybe not. But if it's before time began, I can't imagine who was there but God. God cannot break his promises or else he wouldn't be God. We know that he's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3. This blew me away at the end of this study. Even Wikipedia's founder is an atheist. When I, wrote, when I read what he wrote on this, I was shocked. He said, the riches of God's love unto the vessels of mercy in the last century, the most recent proponents of superlapsarianism include Abraham Kuyper, Herman Hoeksema, Arthur Pink, Gordon Clark, and historically, it is estimated that less than 5% of Calvinists, he says, holds to this doctrine. I was shocked when I read that. I had a brother tell me that, and I was like, nah, it can't be true. And I was like, when I talk to people, they're like, man, that don't sound right. And I'm like, well, study it for yourself. Study it for yourself. So the end, he says, result is the divine decree and manifestation of the glory of God through the application of divine mercy upon some and divine justice upon others. God's mercy is shown to some in both the forgiveness of those guilty and imputed by actual sin and the bestowal of eternal life. And on the other hand, God's justice is shown in permitting those who are guilty and imputed in actual sin to continue in their chosen path and the bestowal of divine judgment to their unrepentant disobedience as the manifestation of glory through the mercy and justice is the final intention given the dictum is the last set of elements to come to pass within history 
or in last execution. What is not so clear is how superlapsarians saw the means playing out to the end. Well, Mr. Wales needs to look in eschatology. Before that, he needs salvation. He needs Jesus. So what's the end of all this? The glory of God. That's the end of it all. God created Adam for his own good purposes, just like he did you and me, just like he did everyone. It's that simple, okay? So is the fall wonderful in the mind of God? Does God have good purposes? Does he not work good through evil? Do we not see that with Job? Do we not see that in Romans, that all things work together for good to those who love him, okay? Do we not see that with Jonah? Okay, do we not see that in all different parts of Scripture with Joseph? Okay, so the end of all this and our hope, and this is the conclusion right here. Revelation 5 says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written in inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and the lucid seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look at it. He said, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Man, we have a lot to be thankful for as Christians because Christ has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah did conquer everything we couldn't have conquered. Adam didn't just plunder us into darkness. He killed us. He killed us. We were dead. We couldn't, we weren't wounded. We were dead. We couldn't do anything. Christ wiped out the handwriting that was on the wall. He prevailed over sin and death in the grave. He became a life-giving spirit, lifting us up out of the estate that Adam fell into. And all of this was his glorious, perfect plan from A to Z. So I'll take questions now. But, you know, just thinking about that entire, just that theme of the fall and redemption that's seen throughout scripture. It just blows me away how much we don't really meditate on our existence and on God's good purposes, right? I, I just, it's one of those things that is, it's astonished me to think theologically <clears throat> of that. I mean, what I was talking about tonight is God's logical order of decrees. Yes, man's logic has a limit to it. But the Bible does say we have the mind of Christ. That is to say that those things that God has revealed to us, they are for us. The secret things are of the Lord, but the things that are for us are for us and our children. I think there's a lot more that we can know that we just stop. I don't know if it's our laziness or sin or whatever, but the more we think through these things and the more we prayerfully consider them, I think God will, it just, it shines more light on our existence and our purposes and why we're here. You know, we have a mission. And that mission is to glorify Christ, the conquering king. So you want to stop and 